0: You're going to love this. Just love it. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, And, of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app on the iTunes, the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and many others, including Radio Sputnik. Now, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Joining you for another action-packed adventure that we call The Bradcast. Uh, You can run, but you can't hide. And we've got lots to get to on today's show, including your phone calls. Yes, we are live in the uh, beautiful KPFK Pacifica Radio studios this afternoon. So uh, as we try to do on Wednesdays, we will try to get uh, to open up the phones to whatever you might want to talk about today. Our phone number, if you want to write it down, 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. It has been uh, an amazing week, frankly, since the racist terrorist massacre at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, shortly after we went off the air last week uh, around this time. We've been spending a lot of time uh, over the past, boy, uh, four or five shows since then, discussing the fallout, the causes uh, over the past week, and we'll probably be talking a bit more about that today particularly if you want to. So 818-985-5735 is our phone number for our listeners on KPFK. You should know you can you can hear us 5 days a week. Uh if you miss the show at any time, go to the KPFK archives, kpfk.org archives and download to your hearts content. Uh, before we get to my guest momentarily, a few news items this afternoon. The convicted Boston Marathon bomber Johar Tsarnaev has uh, apologized to victims today at his sentencing hearing in U.S. federal court. He was then sentenced to death. So that'll stop this sort of thing from happening again. More killing. A change in uh, the U.S. hostage policy. President Obama announced today that the government will no longer threaten criminal prosecution. Against the families of American hostages who are held abroad by groups like the Islamic State if they attempt to pay ransom for the release of their loved ones. Uh, Who knew there was such a policy that you could be threatened with criminal prosecution if you're uh, interested in paying ransom to get your loved ones out of being held hostage? Who knew? Uh, Democrats in the House and Senate today introduced a fix to the Voting Rights Act that was gutted by the uh, Supreme Court two years ago this summer. I think the uh, second two-year anniversary is coming up in a week or so here. Uh, It does uh, a lot more, this this fix, this proposed fix, does a lot more than a previously proposed fix that was sponsored by uh, Republican Congressman James Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin uh, and a bunch of Democrats. But Republicans were not moving that one along anyway, so it appears the Democrats... Are now figuring. Well, hell, they might as well go for a real fix to the law and then run on it in 2016. Now seems to be a good time to do that. I hope to have more on this uh, on this this new fix to the Voting Rights Act a little bit later in the week. Uh, one of the things that the old proposed fix, the ones that uh, the one that James Sensenbrenner was in on, it would have carved out. Uh, photo ID laws. So we still would have had photo ID voting restrictions, which are still likely to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of legal voters under uh, under that previously proposed fix. So now we have a new one, which actually expands the federal government's ability to protect the right to vote. But of course, we've got Republicans controlling both houses. So don't hold your breath for that to pass. But I suspect it will become an issue in the uh, in the 2016 elections. Um, We've also got some presidential horse race news today as the wildly unpopular Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal officially announces his entrance into the crowded race for the 2016 Republican nomination for president of the United States. And we will have some big, big Trump news coming up for you in in a bit later on this hour. Yes, we were talking about it quite a bit, talking about him quite a bit on this show last week after he announced his intention to become a candidate for the 2016 race. That was just before Charleston happened. And some of you, I should add, scoffed at my take at the time uh, when we talked about Donald Trump last week. We will see who's scoffing now. In a little bit. Uh, Fast-track trade authority, supported by Obama and uh, Republicans, passed in the Senate with the help of a number of Senate Democrats, which means the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement is most likely to be passed as well. In case you didn't hear the specific uh, Democrats who allowed this to pass in the U.S. Senate, let me repeat them once again. Michael Bennett of Colorado, Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington, Thomas Carper of Delaware, Chris Coons of Delaware, Diane Feinstein of California, Heidi Heidkamp of North Dakota, Tim Kaine of Virginia, Claire McCaskill of Missouri, Patty Murray of Washington, Bill Nelson of Florida, Jean Shaheen of New Hampshire, Mark Warner of Virginia, and Ron, Wa- Ron Wyden of Oregon, all of them support, the uh, apparently support, the, uh, uh, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the secret trade legislation that you and I are not allowed to see. Uh, and even they, while they, those senators can see it, their staff may not. So they support it, and they'll be coming home for the July 4th holiday, I suspect, holding uh, town meetings and whatnot. If you'd like to give your opinion to any of those Democrats... For supporting this trade deal, I hope you will feel free to do so. Also, Desi Doyen will be joining us in a little bit for the latest Green News Report this week. uh, Speaking of fallout, the right finds themselves in quite a bind now following the landmark climate encyclical issued by Pope Francis last week. Is this a watershed moment for climate change action, for climate denialism? Uh, on the Republican side, I think it might be, particularly with the news that uh, yeah, May 2015 is now officially the planet's hottest May on record. Plus, a massive toxic algae bloom shuts down West Coast fisheries and some not-so-good news about the American eastern cougar. All of that and more in our Green News report with Desi Doyen in a little bit. But first... Um, In the wake of the uh, shootings in Charleston, uh, the the Confederate flag, the Confederate battle flag, obviously has come under fire. We've been talking about that for the last couple of days. Uh, The uh, Mississippi Republican House Speaker uh, has has called for the flag, uh, for for the battle flag, to be removed from Mississippi state flag. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat, has directed the state to remove it from license plates. Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam, a Republican. Has called for the state to do the same thing. Uh, Democrats there, along with uh, Republicans now, are calling for uh, state officials to remove the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Confederate general and the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, from the Tennessee State House where that bust sits today. Uh, Walmart, eBay, Amazon, Sears, many others, removing Confederate flag merchandise from their stores. Warner Brothers today has said they will stop selling the iconic Dukes of Hazzard General Lee car. So that's going to go away. Uh, And I believe it was Alabama uh, was added to the list of states uh, who will be removing the— who have already actually removed the governor there, uh, ordered the uh, flag, the Confederate flags removed— from near the state house, uh, from a memorial near the state house, uh, Darren Roth, the shooter in uh, the confessed shooter in um, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, as I said yesterday, the white racist terrorist shooter at the uh, A.M.E. church there, reportedly said that he wanted his act of terror to start a new race war. But ironically enough, that act may have helped to bring about an end. To the last race war we had in this country. So that's a good thing, I think. But all of this has got me thinking. We talked about this a little bit on the show yesterday. All of this has got me thinking about the passion surrounding flags, which I just don't get. I don't understand it. I get I understand why folks would not want the Confederate flag uh, to, you know, to be hanging at the state capitol, you know, that's a symbol of, uh, of repression, slavery, segregation. I understand why people want to get rid of that flag. What I don't understand is why people want it up in the first place and why they get so emotional about flags, about a piece of cloth, uh, colored cloth probably made in China. I don't get it. Same with the American flag. Same with all flags. I don't understand the emotional attachment to them. And so I've been trying to uh, find somebody who could explain this to me. And we started with the Smithsonian Institute, trying to figure out uh, who could possibly answer my questions about why flags actually matter to anyone. And maybe we found someone. Uh, Ann- Annie Platoff is the first vice president of the North American Vexillal Oh, I've been practicing it all day. Vexillologico, oh, Man, she'll tell us uh, the the association that starts with V and she's a librarian at the University of California Santa Barbara she specializes in the flags of the US space program actually began her career as a librarian at uh, a, a lunar mars librarian at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston uh, and she also specializes in flags of Russia Annie Platov welcome to the broadcast Thank you. Okay. Now that I have you here, I'm going to ask you what this is, but please tell me the name of the organization for which you serve as the first vice president.
1: Okay. So it's called the North American Vexillological Association. (laughs) And vexillology is the systematic or scientific study of flags. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, so basically what we do is we not only... Like flags, but we investigate the underlying stories and the history and the emotions and the the uh, communication that flags send. Just all aspects of flags.
0: uh, Okay, and so uh, how did you become a vexillologist? And I said it correctly that time, I
1: think you did say it correctly. So I started out. um, I was interested in flags as a child, and it just sort of emerged into reading more and more everything I could get my hands on about flags. I started collecting them mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until I was in college I found a book by a gentleman named uh, Dr. Whitney Smith mm-hmm. And he's the gentleman that actually coined the phrase vexillology. <laughs> and he's so the one to
0: blame. Okay. He
1: is. He <laughs> okay. is. But he's really been an inspiration. And mm-hmm. he started the organization, uh, which we just call NAVA. Okay. And um, so he started NAVA and also an international federation of vexillological associations. And so there are people all over the world that study flags. We write scholarly papers and books about them. Mm-hmm. Um, We have conferences in North America every year um, for the North American group. Yeah. And then there's an international congress every two years where people gather in different countries.
0: There's an international congress of vexillology.
1: There is.
0: Wow. All right, before we get into why flags matter... Uh, and or why they have such an emotional resonance with people, which I I actually don't understand uh, why they do. Are are you able to help me understand how the use of a colored piece—and I realize a lot of this may be sacrilege to you, Annie, so I hope you take it in the the spirit it's intended—how a colored piece of cloth— Uh, became used to represent a group or nation uh, uh, or state. How did that come uh, about? I assume it's actually a symbol of uh, or remnant of war and or conflict, no?
1: That's one of the basic areas. The word vexillology actually comes from the Latin word vexillum. And that's what those banners that the Roman legions used to carry
2: Uh were called. So
1: those were vexillums. So it did start out as a military thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it represented the legion and and Rome as they marched around with those things. And if you think about the influence that the Romans had on Europe, you know, it spread and it became symbols of nation-states eventually. Mm -hmm. And so what is really interesting about them is it's not necessarily the piece of cloth but it's what it symbolizes that is what is the emotional thing. So people see, the, for example, the flag of the United States. Mm-hmm. If you think about your childhood, you were indoctrinated into a social perception of that flag from a very early age. You know, in school you said the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. You'd go to a ball game. You'd sing the national anthem. You'd go to a cemetery on Memorial Day or see a parade with soldiers. You'd see the flag. So it's just constant exposure to that flag that ties the piece of cloth to the nation. And that ties to your sense of national identity.
0: Which I always have found to be bizarre. Why would I pledge my allegiance to a flag? I'm not pledging my allegiance to a a national ideal. I'm not even pledging my allegiance to the the Constitution, you know, to protect the values and so forth of the Constitution. But uh, instead... We uh, pledge allegiance to a flag. We make laws in this country as far as how the, the flag, the American flag, must be treated, uh, must be, uh, ironically enough, I think, burned when it's destroyed. And yet, we, you know, we've gone all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, you know, fighting to allow us to burn the flag as a statement, a First Amendment uh, statement. Why do we choose flags instead of ideas? Or are you suggesting that... Flags are just an easy, quick, identifiable way to represent those ideas.
1: Well, that's exactly it. So if you think about the Pledge of Allegiance again, you're not only pledging allegiance to the flag, Mm -hmm. but to the republic for which it stands. So you're really pledging your allegiance to the United States as a citizen of the United States when you're saying that pledge. That's the underlying meaning. And the flag is just a symbol of that relationship between you and your country,
0: I, I, I don't, you know, I just, I, I get that. I don't understand how it becomes uh, such a passionate issue. Here's an example. For, uh, this, is, uh, this is someone, a South Carolina resident, uh, talking about the Confederate flag and why it needs to stay up and why it should not be taken down. Uh, listen to the, the, to the passion of this guy. It's a war memorial to honor 25,000 men. A quarter of the men in South Carolina died
3: to protect this state. They stole it. Mm-hmm.
0: They dishonored that flag. That flag never had anything to do about slavery. Okay, so I understand uh, you know protecting a state, protecting a people. But it's this piece of uh, fabric, probably made in China, that seems to really, really uh, touch off passions. Not just a, a Confederate battle flag, but flag—you know, the American flag. Uh, it just it, people become so passionate about it. Listen, I understand—you know—they also support uh, their their favorite teams, the Yankees. But people don't go crazy if someone burns a Yankees jersey, do they?
1: I I don't know about that one, but think about it this way. The way you look at that Confederate flag depends, again, on the culture and the context in which you were exposed to it. So, for example, I'm from Kansas mm-hmm. originally, which is a state that came in right at the beginning of the Civil War. It was a hotbed of abolitionism, and so I grew up in you know this whole story of the free state and the battle to be a free state. Right. But if you grew up in the South, you have a different cultural context with which you understand the Civil War. Whether I, as a Kansan, can say that's right or wrong, that's, that's the story that is taught in the South. So you grow up understanding that context, that war, differently than somebody from the North. Right. So they have a different view of that flag. Now what's ironic about it is because the flag was appropriated by the Klan and other races, right. it has two meanings for people in the South, depending on who they are. So you could be an African American in the South, and you are very likely to see that as a racist symbol. But your next-door neighbor, who may be on very good, friendly terms with you, may not see it that way, because in their context, they learned that that's the symbol of their great-great-grandpappy fighting for the South, you know, in this glorious mm-hmm. battle for the South. And, and again, you know, look at how the country is parsed for talking about what the Civil War was about. If you grew up in the North, it's obviously a war to end slavery. But if you grew up in the South, you still learn it's a war for states' rights and a struggle against a strong federal government. So, you know, as a country, we can't even agree what the war was about. right. So yes. how could we possibly agree what the flag's about? What the symbolized? flag's
0: about, sure. Uh,
1: exactly. D- d- That's part of the problem. And so one of the things that I think is interesting about this, um, the way the the tide has turned just since the incident in South Carolina, is for the first time we're seeing some of the sort of stereotypical good old boy South Southern politicians mm-hmm. starting to come out and saying, you know what? Maybe it's time we reexamine how we use this flag Mm -hmm. in the non-racist context, because obviously there are a lot of people, voters Mm -hmm. in their state and outside their state, that don't see it as just an innocent flag of the battle and the Civil War. They see it as a flag of racism. So I think it's really an interesting time when it's now whether or not the tide is going to be strong enough to make the change. That's what we're going to have to wait out and see. Because I think in South Carolina, they need two-thirds of the House and the Senate, right?
0: right exactly, to yeah. remove it
1: from the grounds. And that, that could be very difficult to get.
0: But, so. you know, the idea that they have passed a law in South Carolina that, you know, to remove this flag, uh, which, which cannot be lowered, by the way, it's at, you know, full staff, it's sort of locked up there outside the uh, state capitol in Columbia, Th- that they have made a law that requires two-thirds of both houses to remove this. I mean, do other nations revere their flags as the U.S. seems to? uh, Or is this something that's unique to the United States of America?
1: You know, I don't think it's unique to us. I think it really is um, something you find in all different cultures. Um, I was just thinking about um, back in 1965 um, when Canada adopted the flag with the maple leaf. Mm -hmm. You know, we see that flag, we immediately think Canada. Right. There's no doubt in your mind what it stands for. Well. Before nineteen sixty five they had the Canadian Red Ensign, which was basically a red flag with the Union flag, the Union Jack mm-hmm. in the canton in the upper left corner, and then the Canadian coat of arms. Well, if you think about the number of soldiers, so veterans that fought in World War One and World War Two mm-hmm. under that Canadian Red Ensign, for them it was a very difficult transition mm. because their sense of loyalty to Canada and service to their nation was connected to the old red ensign. So when the flag changed, that was very difficult for them. Now, I'm sure later on in life, now that they've gotten used to the new Canadian flag and really can feel that attachment to it, now they own the flag. But it takes a while when you have that transition for everybody to kind of get that sort of attachment to the flag where it now becomes the representation of your national identity.
0: Boy, you know, it must be something within my brain that just doesn't fire correctly. I I suspect if I was, uh, you know, in the military perhaps and, and, you know, was the idea of fighting to protect Uh, The flag, I might understand. I mean, I was inculcated, like you suggest, with the, uh, you know, saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day. And yet, for some reason, um, uh, you know, I'm about as patriotic as can be. I, you know, love the Constitution. I love this country with all its flaws. But when it comes to the flag, it's the flag. It's kind of cool looking. But, you know, I I don't uh, see it. I don't worship it as a false idol, which I think a lot of people, it verges on uh, the way a lot of people treat the flag. I still find it very bizarre. A- uh, Annie Platoff, I want to, in just a few minutes we have here left, um, I know you collect flags yourself. And uh, I'd love to know about some of your favorite flags. But first, the space flags. You wrote a paper. For the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center back in 1993, I was reading it today about flags on the moon. Uh, are, are those famous flags, I, I suspect people remember uh, the one that was first planted there, but is that famous American flag and the other ones that are still planted on the moon, are, are they still there? Are they still sitting there after all of these years up on the moon? And what did you have to do with uh, flags and the space program back at the uh, Johnson Space Center?
1: Well, I actually got interested in the flags in the space program because I worked at the Space Center, and I hadn't been there very long, and it just happened to be the 20th anniversary of the moon landing. And so I had seen an interview with a gentleman who had helped design the special flagpole. And so I I was really inspired by the interview, and I thought, oh, this would be a great topic for a paper for a flag conference. (laughs) So I went and interviewed him. And what's really interesting is because since there's no air on the moon there's right. no no breeze they had to come up with a way to make the flag look like it was flying so it wouldn't be just limp there on the pole so they actually designed a special flag pole with a horizontal crossbar that they could extend so that's why it looks like it's flying and because the flag was really really tightly wrapped
2: mm-hmm.
1: when you when you fold nylon really really tightly it gets wrinkled right. and the wrinkles actually add to the flying effect So, what's really interesting about it is there was even a debate back in '69 about which flag they should put on the moon. So, somebody had suggested because there's a United Nations treaty that prohibits a country from claiming the moon or any other extraterrestrial object. So, when we planted
0: that moon, when we planted that flag on the moon, we weren't claiming that for the U.S.
1: We weren't claiming it for the U.S., exactly. It was more of a flag of exploration, like when somebody climbs Mount Everest and they take their national flag and stick it up on the top. Right. They're not trying to take them out away from Nepal. They are saying, hey, look, I made it. Okay. You know, this is a great achievement. Gotcha. So that's exactly what the meaning of that flag was in that context. And so what's interesting is those flags, we do know, are still there. We don't know the condition that they're in exactly because they've been exposed to radiation all these years, mm. which will tend to turn radi- – um, it'll turn nylon kind of a darker color – so the white could be more of a beige, and then the, the blue and the red could be at, like a darker brown at this point. So we're not even sure if they're really red, white, and blue. Wow. Um, it's also, the moon is pelted by these micrometeorites. Right. So it's possible that, you know, it could have holes in it from the micrometeorites. But we do know that at least five of the six flags are still standing, because there's been um, a space probe that went back to the moon in recent years, and they've taken pictures of the landing sites. Mm-hmm. And the photo analysts who are really good at viewing you know, these pictures from way up and identifying things have actually been able to identify the flags.
0: So we know five well, of the six of them are there. The, five these... of,
1: well, five of the six are still standing. Right. The one from Apollo 11, we really don't have a way to know if it's standing or not because it was kind of close to the spacecraft. They didn't go as far away. So it's possible it may have blown over, but we're not really sure.
0: Blown over when uh, the uh, the, the lunar module left. I see. Okay, very good to know. Finally, before I let you go... Um, uh, flags of Russia—that's another specialty of yours. They've—they've uh, they've changed their flags a lot for some odd reason over the last hundred years or so uh, in in uh, in Russia. Uh, is there a reason why you're interested in those flags specifically, other than I'm sure this means you're a lefty pinko uh, communist? <laughs>
1: Okay, that's a great question. <laughs> so um, I studied Russian when I was in college, just right. because it was it was the 80s, and it was kind of one of those languages not very many people studied. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try something different. Everybody takes Spanish. So I did take Russian, and I went on a, a trip with a bunch of students to the Soviet Union for two weeks. And it was kind of neat because we were with a group from West Point even that was going Uh on a trip to the Soviet Union. So it was an interesting opportunity because it was my first time I'd ever been in another culture. And boy, what a different culture it was. And, you know, we were just surrounded by flags because it was the 60th anniversary of the revolution when Mm -hmm. we were there. So... There were flags everywhere, and I became really interested in how different cultures used flags because I knew my culture and how they used them, but I had never seen it in a different context. So that interest kind of continued, and then, you know, when the Soviet Union broke up, Then, all of a sudden, Russia's going, okay, now what do we do? So a lot of the former republics that had been independent countries for at least a small period of time Mm -hmm. went back to using their pre-Soviet flags. So Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Ukraine went to their old flag. And that's also the decision that Russia went. They went back to the tricolor that that, uh, Peter the Great had introduced.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So they went back to their um, white over blue over red tricolor. And so um, what's interesting is even they have people that see the Soviet flag differently. So nowadays, when you are in Russia, Mm -hmm. modern Russia, when you see a Soviet flag, it could be used by a veteran who is celebrating still the victory in World War II because there's still a lot of veterans, and Mm. that flag meant a lot to them in that war because it was their victory over fascism. Then you could also have people that are members of the Russian Communist Party because they do still have a Communist Party. Mm -hmm. So those people could use the flag. But then there will be other people who may have been oppressed during the Soviet era, but when they see that flag, they're going to read it differently. They don't have the nostalgia for the Soviet Union. They remember you know, what their grandfather told them about Stalin or you know that their mm-hmm. father was arrested by the KGB. So the flag to them means something different. And where you really see this playing out right now is in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So in Ukraine... There are little, the different sides are literally taunting each other with flags. I oh mean, you watch my. the demonstrations, and, and the pro-Russian people will often use not only a Russian flag, but a Soviet, Soviet flag. flag, or military flags associated with the Soviet Union Good or Russia.
0: Lord, all of that sounds horribly familiar, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. It and really the
1: Ukrainians, does. Yeah. they like to use, the Ukrainian nationalists like to use one, From a uh, rebel group that formed in the middle of World War II, that not only fought the Soviets, but they also fought um, the Nazis. But then again, sometimes in fighting the the Soviets, they collaborated
0: with With the Nazis. With the Nazis, yep.
1: So this flag has both, you know, a Nazi collaborator meaning. If you're if you're a Russian, that's definitely how you'd read that flag. But if you're Ukrainian, you read it as you know, Ukraine free of all foreign influence. So that's another flag that has two very, very extremely different meanings. And... You just watch the demonstrations next time you see one and how they're using the flags, because they really are taunting each other with them. It's quite interesting. Yeah,
0: you're right. And I have seen that, and they absolutely are. Annie Platoff, uh, fascinating to talk to you about this. Really appreciate it. It's been driving me crazy for the past uh, week, at least since this has come up, trying to understand flags uh, and and why people are so passionate uh, for and against them. Uh, Annie Platoff is the first vice president of the North American Vexillological Association. I did it. Uh, She's a a librarian at UCSB. It has been delightful to talk to you, Annie. We'll have to have you back uh, sometime uh, for a uh, Ask the Vexillologist uh, segment, and we'll have calls for you. Thanks, Annie. Great to talk to you. Okay, thank you so much. All right. Uh, Wow. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and come back. uh, Get back to some harder news, I suppose. At least uh, some Donald Trump news. uh, and your calls at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, whatever you'd like to talk about. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Stay tuned. <laughs>
2: This is where the party ends. I can't stand
0: here listening to you and your racist friends. No, I can't. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. We'll be getting to your calls in a moment. 818-985-5735. Speaking of racist, we talked about how the bubble is now closing in on Republicans as their pathological denialism on race issues Uh, Right wing domestic terrorism, gun violence, of course, climate change, uh, how that's becoming less and less operative as it becomes more and more obvious even to uh, even to their supporters, uh, the folks at Fox News and so forth, particularly after the obviously racist terrorist attacks in South Carolina. Um, that they're simply wrong about so many things. It's becoming more and more obvious to people, I think, who are even watching Fox. I spoke earlier this week with Eric Bollert of Media Matters uh, about this and about Fox's pathological denialism and the fact that, for now, they are thanking their lucky stars that the Charleston shooter has yet to mention them.
2: I will
3: say
0: I think Fox dodged a enormous bullet, and I guarantee you they were petrified as this story played out, and I guarantee you they were petrified when there was
3: news of this manifesto found, uh, because if this guy had sung their praise in public, it would have been a political, or a a public relations
0: nightmare for them. Oh, you think? On a related matter, we spoke on, uh, on this show yesterday with Sean McElwee of Demos about his new study looking at the racist views of Fox News viewers. He looked at the views of Fox News viewers and non-Fox News viewers in regard to racial issues, such as whether they think uh, African Americans are lazy, whether they get too much help from the government, and so forth. You'll be shocked to learn that Fox viewers were far and away more inclined to hold racist, stereotypical views of African Americans than were non-Fox viewers. But even more so... Self-identified conservatives who watched Fox were more racist than self-identified conservatives who didn't watch Fox. And if you really want to drill down, uh, regular Bill O'Reilly viewers were just a little bit more racist than regular Fox viewers who didn't watch Bill O'Reilly, according to this study. Sean McElwee described the findings... Uh, as a deep indictment of the way that Fox News portrays the news.
3: It's very clear that Fox News is playing on uh, the the racism and the latent racial resentment of many whites in in the country. And you can see that on their coverage of the Ground Zero mosque. You can see that on their coverage of the Trayvon Martin case. It's very
0: clear. Okay. And uh, I wanted to get into, uh, we also spoke with Adam Briggle a few days ago from Frack Free Denton, Uh, about this amazing case out of Denton, Texas, where voters voted to outlaw fracking. But the pretend small government Republicans who run the state overruled that and have now passed a law to ban fracking bans, Uh, basically uh, making it illegal for voters to be able to have local control Of their own private property, everything that Republicans pretend to be against, they are actually for. Finally, before we get to the to the phones, you laughed. You laughed at me. uh, You scoffed. Uh, Last week, we talked about Donald Trump on the show, discussed him with uh, Heather Digby Parton when he entered the race. Uh, She seemed to agree with my take that Trump could do very well among the Republican Party, as insane as he sounds. After some forty years of misbegotten Reaganist Republicanism, uh, he is uh, Fox News, but without the filter, and they don't like admitting it. But that's what he is, and a lot of a lot of you folks, you tweeted, you uh, commented, you emailed, and you can email me now, Bradcast at bradblog.com. You can tweet me at the Bradblog. Uh, uh, you 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 folks said I was overestimating Donald Trump. Oh really? The shakeup and the Republican race for president. New numbers just in show a businessman, Donald Trump, making huge gains. He's in second place in New Hampshire. The Donald Trump surge in New Hampshire is infuriating Carl Rove. How should Republicans handle Donald Trump? Uh, ignore him. Yeah, well, uh, good luck with that. And I don't want to say I told you so because that's the name of one of Rush Limbaugh's books. But you know what? I told you so. Uh, The New York developer and reality television star is now in second place among the 2016 presidential candidates in a new Suffolk University poll of New Hampshire Republicans. He's behind only former Governor Jeb Bush. This is a poll of 500 likely GOP presidential primary voters. Uh, Jeb Bush has 14 percent. Donald Trump has 11 percent. Everyone else is in single digits. Donald Trump is currently beating Scott Walker at 8 percent, Marco Rubio at 7 percent, Ben Carson at 6, Chris Christie at 5, Rand Paul at 4, and the list goes on and on. Donald Trump has surged into second place, just as I told you he would. You're welcome. Our phone number is eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five eight one eight nine eight five KPFK. Let's go to uh, uh, Roy in here. We go, Roy in Los Angeles. Hey, Roy, welcome to the broadcast. Oh, did I?
4: Thank you go. for taking my call. Now, listen, when you get that vaccinologist back on there, I'm going to be sure to call. Okay. Now, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. And I wish I had more time with you because what people are seeing now. It's just a phase. Back in 1977, myself and 13 other people, we had them to take down that Dixie flag off of the courthouse on the corner of meeting
2: mm-hmm. and broad.
4: That flag, would it symbolized, all you have to do is go to Charleston, go to Ashley Avenue and Fishburne Street. They have the same tree that they executed Ben Marvizion it mm-hmm. still stands in the middle of the street with a memorandum around it. So Charleston has got a, got a, tie, got a background to it that people don't realize. There was one time Ch- Charleston was totally black. It- and we have had the clang to come through Charleston through that same Fishburne Street and shoot at the street. And on their way back out, because they ran into the Ashley River uh, walk uh, the Ashley River, they had to turn around and come back. When they came back, the beating that they got from the people on Fishville Street back to Green, Sumter Street, Norman Street, they never investigated it. They never came back. So we knew it was the police.
2: Mm-hmm. And you got
4: to remember, the claims comes from the Confederate Army. Bad. I wish I had
0: more time. I got some things I can tell you. Uh, Roy, right. you. You, you you did it. You, you did a great job. You got in a lot in a very few minutes, and, I re- and uh, an excellent pronunciation of vexillologist, by the way. Uh, really appreciate that. Denmark Vesey, you mentioned uh, who who was hung a, at that tree. He led a slave rebellion. He was one of the founders of the Emanuel uh, A.M.E. Church, as that's I understand. Right. Correct.
4: Yeah, that's right. I know about him. We live on Calhoun Street. It's called the borough. We, I raised up in the borough. That's my daddy and all of them come up. Thank you. So we know the effects of the right across the street from AME Church is the green, and they got a big old statue of Calhoun, the Confederate ge- general, uh, military man.
2: Yep.
0: Thanks, Roy. I really appreciate your call. Uh, uh, stay in touch. Always, always good to hear from you, my friend. Really uh, well done, and I, w- I do wish we had more time for you. Let's go to uh, 818-985-5735 is our phone number. Uh, let's go to uh, Gigi in Pasadena. Hey, Gigi, welcome to the broadcast.
5: Hi, Brad. Hi, First Gigi. All, hi, first-time caller. I love yours and Desi's show.
0: Oh, well, thank She's you.
5: Wonderful. She's wonderful. You guys have great chemistry now down to it. Let me ask you a question, um, because I know your issue, I was listening uh, about the flag, and then I want to make another comment, and then I'll hop off, because I have a lot I could say, too. I know you Um, do. uh,
0: Pick your best one. Go ahead.
5: On the flag, now, if we're, you know, do you, what do you think? I know it's a piece of fabric. I understand what you're saying, but think about this. Let's say that tomorrow we wake up here, and there all of a sudden appear is it swastikas? I never, I'm not never sure about that word.
0: Right, swastika. Yeah.
5: Yeah. On, 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 on every, you know, all up and down, sure, the Bronx and all over America. Now it's just a piece of fabric. However. How, what do you think our Jewish friends, how
0: do you think they would feel? Well, as, I, as I've as i said, I understand why uh, people would want that uh, Confederate flag down. It is a symbol of oppression. I can similarly understand, I talked about it on, on yesterday's show, how I would not want to see Nazi flags, swastika flags, uh, because of what it stands for. So I understand why people want it down. What I don't understand is why people want it up, why they invest so much into these... Oh. Symbols and uh, okay, you know, now, yeah. Well,
5: I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to go there because I okay. heard it. I had my radio come on at three in the morning, so I, I I'm a little groggy, but I heard it on one of the shows. Okay. Um, I'm not sure, but what I what I heard. This doesn't come from me, but it makes total sense that um, <clears throat> in um, Germany, when they did all of these heinous things, they said that, and in other countries, when things have been done like this, slavery and so forth and so on, yeah, the people. Grow and evolve. Like there are no Germans that would want that swastika. They don't want to want to even be reminded. They are they are so sorry for it. even the ones that you know were never that weren't born at the time. But they understand it, and they said that uh, what was what was said was that the South never, has never gone through. And I forget the term they used to where they could really understand that this was a horrible thing, and that. <clears throat> Can, even if it was their great, their ancestors that did it—great, great, great grandparents uh, or fathers and stuff—that um, that that they they instead the opposite seems to have happened, where they are carrying this tradition on. I mean, the- we can see these signs, and it's not a conspiracy theory. We can see where they are trying to take. Well, they're trying to take the country back, but going and 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 certainly you it, it reminds me of the slave patrols that G- I read about in school.
0: Well, Gigi, you can't down. tell me about those this week. You can wait till next week only because I'm going to run up against the hard break. Gigi, I, I appreciate your call, and and you're right. Yeah, we had 10 years of reconstruction after the Civil War, and then we sort of abandoned it for the next hundred years, uh, which is why you know we had to fight for the Voting Rights Act, which is why we still have to fight for the Voting Rights Act. Okay, one more really quick call before we get to Desi. Doyen and the Green News Report. You stand by, Desi, you've got a fan out there, and Gigi. Let's go to Tony in Long Beach. Hey, Tony, welcome very quickly to the broadcast, sir. Oh, I did it again. There we go. Welcome, Tony. Yes. There you go. Yes. Hello,
3: I'll be very succinct. Tony Taylor from Long Beach. The perpetrator has been apprehended, but the killer is still at large. And do you know what I mean by that? Tell me. The killer is the whole belief system of white supremacy.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Came from a soil, fertile fertile soil. That means everything that is white is supreme. Religion, culture, skin tone, mores, and values. Now, the sharpest expression of that is this heinous crime, but the implicit and explicit bias exists in our society, not only in race, but in class and in gender. Take the Harvard racial implicit bias test that Lisa Bloom, Gloria Allred's daughter, her book about that, and you will find even people of color have internalized implicit bias towards their own people, mm-hmm. race, class, and gender, and only by spiritual divine intervention and people working together with the Spirit can people come above all that.
0: Thank you, Tony. I don't know if the Spirit is going to do, uh, do us any good here. Maybe it will. Uh, I think uh, people beginning to understand it uh, in a way that you described it uh, will help a lot, and uh, people just beginning to become decent human beings, frankly. The, uh, you, you know, the flag may come down, but you're right. The the racism, the, the idea of white supremacy will continue for a long, long time. So I've, uh, something else people laughed at me about a few weeks ago. I talked about entering a progressive age. I think we are entering a progressive age. I think the way the flag is now, the Confederate battle flag is now coming down is more evidence of that. Uh, but it's going to be a long age and it's going to be a long fight. So uh, thank you for continuing that fight. We are going to take a quick break and come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Always good to talk to you. Sorry I couldn't get to more calls today. We will try again soon. Uh, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please stay tuned. Stop. Hold it. And melting for Desi Joy. Uh, hey, Des. Hey. Busy show today.
6: Yes, but uh, interesting. I mean, a vexillologist? What What are the odds?
0: Oh, now you're just coming in and showing off by saying <laughs> it. Now you're just showing off. I've been off. practicing. I see. Well, well done. Well done. And, and good booking, by the way. Uh, she was great. Uh, my thanks again to Annie Platoff, the first vice president of the North American vexillolo- uh. vexillological...
6: Vexillological... Society. You show off. You
0: show off. All right. uh, Before we get to the Green News Report, as we we deal with this in our Green News Report, I I received a press release um, from a group uh, inspired by Pope's encyclical Catholic and Evangelical leaders are now getting together, urging political action on climate change. They are now viewing this as a pro-life issue.
6: That's that's amazing and awesome. I think it it could very well be a... a What's the word I'm looking for? A watershed
0: moment, Mm -hmm. a
6: watershed moment that gives permission for uh, religious groups to step forward and say, hey, we're supposed to be stewards, not destroyers.
0: Uh, That would be nice. All right, let's get to it. We talk about this a little bit in our latest Green News Report.
3: Essentially, what this papal encyclical is suggesting is that every Catholic should vote for the
5: Democrat Party.
6: Republicans in a bind after the Pope's landmark encyclical on climate change.
5: This warm blob offshore is potentially a window of things to come.
6: Record toxic algae bloom shuts down West Coast fisheries. May 2015, the planet's hottest May on record. Plus, the eastern cougar is off the endangered species list. But there's a catch.
0: As always, a catch. All of those cougars and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Do
6: you agree with the Pope's moral mission on climate change?
0: Excuse me? He He has every right to have a view on it. Uh, That wasn't the question, Jeb, but good dodge. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it has been quite enjoyable to watch over the past week since the Pope released his encyclical on climate change. The Republicans, the folks at Fox News, they are tying themselves in knots trying to figure out how to deal with it.
6: Yes, they are pretty much denying as fast as they can. That's from the Republicans who are running for the 2016 Republican Party presidential nomination.
0: I think they're running from it, frankly.
6: Yep, that's probably a better way to put it. A former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, who is a devout Catholic, over the weekend claimed that he loves the Pope, but said the Pope shouldn't wade into political issues saying, quote, I don't think we should politicize our faith and I don't get economic policy from my bishops or my cardinal or my pope.
0: Well, then I wonder who he's going to get his uh, climate policy from since these guys seem uninterested in listening to you know the actual scientists.
6: And on NBC's Meet the Press, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee went straight to denying the global scientific consensus and threw in some 1970s Ice Age myth for good measure.
0: Yeah, some nonsense.
3: Whether it's man-made or not, I I know that when I was in college, I was being taught that if we didn't act very quickly, that we were going to be entering a global freezing.
0: That's not true. And, and,
3: you know, go back and look at the covers of Time and Newsweek from the early 70s. I've seen them. And, And we were told that if we didn't do something by 1980, we'd be popsicles. No, we weren't. Now we're told that we're all burning up. Not true. Science is
0: not as settled on that as it is on some things.
6: Basically, all he has is a myth to try to counter what the science actually says.
0: The myth being that in the 70s, all of the scientists were warning that we were heading into an ice age. That's not true. There was a tiny percentage of scientists who, who felt that might be the case. The vast majority were warning then and are still warning now about global warming.
6: Meanwhile, in the race for the Democratic Party presidential nomination, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley responded to the Pope's encyclical by declaring that if he is elected president, his first priority will be setting the U.S. on a path to phase out fossil fuels by 2050 with the goal of transitioning the U.S. to entirely 100 percent clean energy in 35 years.
0: One hundred percent clean energy by 2050 for the U.S.? That would be his goal. That's Martin O'Malley? Yep. I like it.
6: Meanwhile, the planet continues to ignore politics, with 2015 blowing past every other year in terms of global temperatures. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has announced that May 2015 was the hottest May ever recorded for the planet. It was also the hottest spring ever recorded on the planet, and we've just had the hottest January to June ever recorded on the planet by far.
0: Breaking lots of records, but let's not notice that, Governors Huckabee and Bush.
6: And a lot of that warm is going into the ocean and scientists believe that might be the cause behind a record toxic algae bloom that has forced officials to close commercial crab and shellfish fisheries along the west coast from california to washington in an interview with kuow in seattle toxic algae expert vera trainer says commercially caught shellfish is not dangerous to consumers but Unfortunately, wildlife is not so lucky. She says this may be a window into our future.
5: We're trying to find out if this is a scenario this year that's going to give us a taste of what is to come. And what's particularly worrisome is that we're not only seeing this one type of algal bloom, but two other types of algal blooms.
6: In other words, the scientists are seeing multiple simultaneous outbreaks of toxic algae blooms, and that's really
0: weird. Once again, nothing to see here, Governors.
6: Finally, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says it's time to take the Eastern American cougar off the endangered species list. It used to roam from Canada to South Carolina, and it's coming off the list not because its population has rebounded. Managers at the Fish and Wildlife Service say the eastern cougar should be taken off the list because it is extinct and no longer warrants Federal Endangered Species Act protections.
0: Well, that's horribly sad. (laughs) I'm
6: so sorry, but it's true.
0: Now I can't even make my cougar jokes. Thanks for nothing, Desi Doyen. For much more on that and all of the other stories we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman.
6: And I'm Desi Doyon.
0: And this has been your Green News Report.
2: Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone?
0: Good point. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest, oh, to our board op today, G. Thank you, G. And to my guest, Annie Platoff of UCSB and the North American Vexillological Society Association. Damn, she's a vexillologist. There we go. Uh, Join us tomorrow for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. Until then, you can download our broadcast anytime at bradblog.com at kpfk.org on iTunes. I hope you'll give us a good review to help others find the show a lot more easily. We'll be back with you soon. You can find me and follow me on the Twitters and the Facebook at the Brad Blog. You can email me, bradcast at bradblog.com. And, of course, find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey,